Good morning. You guys doing well? Good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're looking at verses 16 through 20. This is our The God You Long For teaching series, and today we're going to talk about the fact that He is triune. Yes, I'm a little bit sleep deprived. Had about 30 junior highs plus uh, leaders sleeping in my backyard for the last 48 hours. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, let's see, I can't even think straight this morning. Okay, let's close for <laughs> prayer. Um, it was a lot of fun. Those kids are wonderful kids. There's a couple of them, though, that belong to few folks in here that we're going to have to bring before the board of elders, and uh, I'm kidding. But those are, they're, they're wonderful kids, uh, and uh, we'll probably, we're going to do it again in two weeks with our high school students, and then we'll probably do it again in 20 years, um, <laughs> because uh, actually, we would do it much sooner than that, but I'm going to have to recover. But, um, but the most important thing is that I, I really believe that our kids here are encountering Jesus, and one of the reasons why we, we go to, that we allow the, them to, you know, to sleep in our backyard and we go on these little retreats and do all these things is so that they would encounter Jesus, that they would really begin, uh, be more smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And, and we're seeing that happen with our kids here at Desert Breeze and through the retreats that they go on and all the stuff that's happening. So I'm stoked about that. That's cool. And good to be here this morning. Great, we have a great uh, teaching this morning. We'll be reading Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Let me begin, just kind of give you a little bit of a thesis statement uh, of this teaching series. And maybe I'll put it a little bit differently, and then I'll go back to how I've been saying it in the past. But great theology leads to healthy psychology that produces within us soul-satisfying doxology. You're probably saying, what did he just say? Um, let me explain what I'm saying here. Great theology. Theology is the study of God. And that's what we really do each week. When we study the Bible, we're really studying God. We're, we're wanting to encounter God. So great theology leads to healthy psychology. In other words, the more you begin to understand who God is, the God of the Bible, the more you encounter him, the more you realize that he has this unconditional love for you that you are totally secure in him and that he has an, that in his eyes you are infinitely significant. There's no better psychology than that. And when you really understand who it is that walks through your day with you, who it is that is, is madly in love with you, who it is that uh, has gone to unbelievable measure to reach out to you, to love you, to pursue you, to draw you into his family, and so that naturally is going to come, this is going to bring soul-satisfying doxology. Doxology is just worship. So uh, his love awakens within us our love in response. You can't help but love him back when you begin to understand who he is and what he's done for you. Come on, let me put it in a different terms now. I, I said it like that. So the thesis statement of this whole teaching series is that anytime that you are experiencing inordinate anxiety, anger, or depression, it's at that moment you are forgetting who God is. And who it is that walks through that day with you. 
And so what we do through worship, through the teaching of God's word, through all that we do here is to try to kind of recalibrate our hearts and our lives so that we once again refocus on God and begin to see how wonderful, how great, how beautiful he is so that we can have that, once again, that sense of awe, wow, and mmm, satisfying of being in his presence. So we're going to talk about the triune God, that God is triune is a mystery, to say the least, one of the many mysteries of God. It's a mystery, and the mysteries of God are not meant to be conquered, because we couldn't do it anyway. We can't really fully grasp it with our finite minds, so you're not going to understand it. But they're not meant to be conquered, but to be celebrated. If, if I were to ask you to uh, go out and find a, a blog or an article or a book on making the, proving the point that the earth is round, you'd have a hard time finding that. You would nowadays. Maybe a number of years ago you wouldn't. But nowadays you would because it is assumed. It's just assumed. Everybody knows the earth is round, except there is a, a flat earth society that's out there. That's pretty crazy. And I think they've been smoking too much medicinal marijuana. I mean, it's just... It's crazy that people would think that, but, but it's assumed, so there's not much information out there about it. And so it is with the Trinity. When you study through the scriptures, it's not in the, in the foreground, it's in the background of the text that we're going to, particularly the text we're looking at this morning. And so uh, it's assumed throughout the scripture, the Trinity. In fact, the term Trinity is not found in the Bible, but the concept is clearly there, and the implications are stunningly beautiful. They're really amazing. There's a couple quotes here before we pray. Uh, One is by J.I. Packer. He says, the historical doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. (laughs) That's true. And so that's what we're going to embark upon today. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the technical side, so you're going to have to bear with me. Those of you that are kind of Bible nerds like me, you're going to really like it, but then you're going to hang in there with me because we're going to get to the, the back end of this, it really talks about the implications and how this applies to our lives. So I've got to get into a little bit of technical stuff before we get there. But would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we'll dive into our text. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. Our hearts burn for you. Father God, in the name of, our, of your Son, our Savior, through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are our most satisfying reality. There is no doubt about it. And, and God, we sin. We know that we sin when we don't find our deepest satisfaction in you. And so, God, this morning through the study of your word, may we see you more clearly and savor you more deeply in our hearts so that we can go out of this place and show you through our lives as we live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then we'll unpack our, our notes. This is the end of the book of Matthew. Great big ending, and it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. That Speaking of Jesus, he's now resurrected, and they saw Jesus. They were blown away, and they worshipped him. But it says, But some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. So the foreground of this is typically I've taught this in the past, and it's been more about evangelism and discipleship. We're going to look at this at the, at the background of this text and look at the Trinity, that God is a triune God. And we're going to ask these questions. What is and isn't the Trinity? Why we should believe it? And then what difference does it make? So let's look at the first. What is and isn't the Trinity? What is the Trinity? The Trinity is that God is one in essence and three in person. So you need to, you need to memorize that because if you're a Christian... Uh, Historical Christianity believes in the Trinity. You need to be able to share that with others. When people say, well, what is the Trinity? God is one in essence, three in person. God is one in essence, three in person. Immediately, sometimes people will say, well, that's a contradiction. Well, no, it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. Contradiction would be if I said God is one in essence, three in essence, or God is one in person, three in person. That would be a contradiction. But it's a paradox. And so in this in the statements, the Trinity, God is one in essence or in nature and three in person. There's three statements that we must also embrace. Get ready to write fast because I'm going to kind of zip through some of this pretty quick. There is one God. So, that, so when we talk about the Trinity, we believe that there is one God. And did you notice in verse 19, he said, baptizing them in the, what does it say? Baptizing them in the name. Baptizing them in the, I, I gave you the answer. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Baptize them in what? Name. It, did you notice it's not plural? He doesn't say names, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says name, singular. God's one. One in essence. And then you go into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you really have the, the idea of the Trinity right here in what Jesus is saying. And in fact, you can go throughout Scripture and you'll see that. And you can study these on your own as you work through both the Old and New Testament. Number two, God is three persons. So, God, so there is one God. God is three persons. And so in verse 19, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also see this in Matthew three sixteen through 17, where Jesus is being baptized. And uh, the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. And then you have, a, have the Father speaking from heaven. So you got the three members of the triune God in that. Also, Genesis one twenty six. when you look in the Old Testament, sometimes people say, well, how far back does the Trinity go? Well, the Trinity goes back all the way to the first chapter of Genesis. And in fact, there's, it's implied really in the word, in the beginning, God, Elohim, the, the word Elohim, as opposed to El, it means a plurality. There's that idea of a plurality. But it's even clearer as you get down to verse twenty. Six, where it says, and let us make God in our image. Why the plural? He's not speaking of angels. We weren't created in the image of angels. He's speaking of the triune God. So the very first chapter, let us make man in our image. So, so we've got, there is one God. God is three persons. And then number three, each person is fully God. So let's spend a little bit more time on this. Let me walk you through this. I don't think anyone would disagree with us that the Father is God. And there's references there. You can look those up on your own. But, but where people start stumbling over is that Jesus is God. There are many 
this is where, where you get a lot of the cults, and we'll talk about some of those in just a moment. But Jesus is God. But look at verse 17. Did you notice how they responded to Jesus after his resurrection? And when they saw him, they did what? They worshiped, and some doubted, but they worshiped him. In the book of Revelation, remember the story of the Apostle John, how he's exiled on the island of Patmos after they tried to boil him to death in oil, and they couldn't kill him and so he, they, because God was not finished with his work here on this planet Earth. And so they send him off to this island, and he writes the book of Revelation. He has this phenomenal encounter. An angel shows up, and do you guys remember what John does when the angel shows up? He bows down and almost starts to worship the angel. And you remember how the angel responds? Angel goes, hey, 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 time out, stop. Don't worship me. Don't worship me. Worship God. Let me ask you, did Jesus do that here? When they worshiped him, did he say, stop, don't worship me, worship God? No. No, he received their worship. So it's given us a little bit of an idea of his deity. He claimed to be God. He is God. And they worshiped him. Not only that, commentators would also say something here in verse 19. In this text, Jesus has the audacity to put himself between God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So it says, so he says, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's putting himself in the middle of this triune God. Now, if I were to do that, Father, Ray, Holy Spirit, run, Forrest, run, okay? Um, yeah, if a guy says that, somehow makes him to be deity, and that's all, there are cult leaders that have really pretty much said that or kind of alluded to that, but here Jesus is doing that. So he claimed to be God, he's even making reference, they worship him as God, and then he even puts himself within the triune God. And so Jesus is indeed God, and uh, when you go to the book, the beginning of the book of, of John, John chapter 1 verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is Word? Who is Word? Who is the Word? Jesus. Okay. So the Word is, is Jesus, and so in the beginning was the Word, and the beginning was Jesus, and the Word was Jesus, and the Word, so it's actually what it's talking about. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It'd almost be like me saying, I'm Ray, I'm with Jim, oh, and I am Jim. It doesn't make sense, does it? But, it? but that's what it's saying, actually. So, if you're here and we talk about the Trinity and you're trying to wrap your mind around it, don't try. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't. There's no way you're going to be able to, to really understand the Trinity. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a bit on the Trinity, and he said it's almost like if we lived in a two-dimensional world and someone from a three-dimensional world, three-dimensional person came into a two-dimensional world, we still wouldn't be able to fully comprehend this three-dimensional person. And, and so it is with us. We are finite beings. Our minds are limited, and so it's hard for us to understand an eternal God. I mean, when we look at life and we look at things, we look at everything with a sense of beginning and an end, and yet the Bible says that God has always, always existed. He is an eternal being. In fact, we studied a few weeks ago in the, uh, in the book of Exodus, I think it was the third chapter where we studied that. We're talked about where, where Moses had this encounter with God, and God said, I am that I am. I am the self, self-existent one, which means I've always existed, and, and I'm not dependent upon anybody to exist. I self-exist. That's hard for us to comprehend. It's truly a mystery. And in essence, what he's saying also is that I can, I can take something that's dead and make it alive. I can create something out of nothing. 
And, and so really what the Bible says is that when we look around, everything that we see has been created out of nothing by God, this self-existing God. And so certainly we cannot really wrap our minds around that, can't fully understand it. And yet the Bible's packed full with it. It's, it's clear. And so each person is God. Let me continue on here. So the Holy Spirit is God. You can read that on your own, Acts 5, 3 through 4. The Holy Spirit is not some force. The force be with you. Luke Skywalker, you know, uh, I'm not a Star Wars guy, but, you know, there's a lot, there are actually religious groups out there that would say, oh, it's just a force. Well, actually, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's pretty powerful, but he's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. And so it's always important that you keep those in mind. Now, there are, so let me go through this again, and you need to kind of really remember this, is that the Trinity is that God is one in essence, three in person, three parts to it. You have to have all three of these parts, that there is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Now, errors, heresy, come from denying any of those three parts. Let me walk you through this, and I'll point out some cults that are uh, represented in our culture today in each of these. First one is modalism. Modalism. Modalism is one person appearing in three different forms or modes. Now, oneness Pentecostalism Jesus-only groups, and they, they're, they're prevalent here in America today. I don't know how widespread they are throughout the world, but oneness Pentecostalism is, is a cult. Now, cult is any group who claims to be Christian, but their, um, their theology, their orthodoxy is outside of the pale of what the Bible teaches. And so certainly, so what they teach is that Jesus wears different hats, just as I'm a father, husband, pastor, I wear all these hats. And they say, well, that's what Jesus does. Well, that's not true. That's not what Jesus does. That's not what the Bible teaches. That would be classified as heresy. It's outside of the pale of orthodoxy. And so you've got modalism. Oh, by the way, it's just kind of interesting. There, there's a guy that's on, I don't watch TBN. I think there's a lot of heresy on TBN, to be quite honest with you. But uh, I didn't say that in the first service. But just, just for the record... There's a lot of really bad theology that comes through TBN and some of these Christian networks. So you have to be discerning. My job is to try to help you to be real discerning. But there was a guy on TBN and some of the other networks, but it's, it's ironic that this guy on Trinity Broadcasting Network was a modalist. And he's kind, of, he's kind of backstroked a little bit lately, but he still kind of embraces it and kind of says, well, it's a mystery, and so it's almost kind of like it can be modalism. or can, No, it can't be. It's one in essence, three in person. It's not modalism. That's not what it's saying. And yet there's a lot of people that follow this guy. And so it's, it's heretical. You need to be aware of that. It can really lead you astray in, in areas of your life. Here's the next one is uh, Arianism. Arianism denies the deity of Jesus and that he is the highest created being of God. Anybody know what cult group uh, associates with that understanding of Jesus? Anybody yell it out to me? Who? JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, yeah. The Jehovah Witnesses actually embrace that. They deny the deity of Jesus. By the way, you also need to know, and hey, these are great people. I'm not saying that they're not great people. Pentecostal oneness uh, are great people. The problem is, is their theology. It's important that we worship God in spirit and in truth according to what the Bible teaches. Truth does matter. And you've heard me talk about that a few weeks ago. Uh, and so Jehovah Witnesses actually have their own Bible. It's called the New World Translation. So stay away from that. They've actually doctored it a bit. And they use the guys from the Watchtower that do the interpreting for them. They've actually taken verses like 1 John 1, 
or, or not First John, but John 1, 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, and have doctored that by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They've inserted the article A. And any renowned Greek scholar would say, wrong, you can't do that. But they've done that to try to help you to see that, no, Jesus isn't really God. And uh, it's, it's deception is what it is. And it, they would be classified as a cult. So you've got modalism, Arianism. But you also have tritheism, which teaches that the Trinity consists of three equal, independent, and autonomous beings, each of whom is divine. Anybody know what cult group uh, associates with this one? Mormonism, yeah. In fact, they would actually preach that all of us can be a god. Well, just us guys. And you ladies will be eternally pregnant. (laughs) Praise God! You know what we'll be doing? Yeah, that's kind of messed up, actually. So, they're great people. I've had some really great Mormon friends. But they're deceived. I have no problem saying that because the Bible says that. The Bible is very clear about that. So, uh, so what happens is that when you get any of this wrong, when you get any of this wrong, I mean, you start getting this heresy. And, uh, and so it's, it's important to keep that, keep that appropriate. It's interesting that uh, St. Augustine said this about the Trinity And he wrote considerably about the Trinity. He said that if you read the Old Testament without the New Testament, you would never come up with the Trinity. And he said that the Old Testament is like a furnished room dimly lit. And not until you let light into the room from the New Testament that you can begin to see the specifics. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to understand Scripture. The more you understand the New Testament and then as you go back into the Old Testament, you begin to see Jesus everywhere. Uh, Case in point, I mean, like I already said, Genesis chapter 1, you see the triune God. Let us make man in our image, and you see that. But you see these Christophanies. You see where the, the angel of the Lord shows up, and then you'll have an angel of the Lord. So anytime it says an angel of the Lord, it's an angel. But anytime it says the angel of the Lord, it's actually Christ showing up in the Old Testament. So you get these Christophanies, you've got all these different images and pictures that represent Christ. And so in the Old Testament, they're pointing ahead to Christ. In the New Testament, we kind of point back to Christ. And so it's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to, to really study Scripture. This book is about Jesus Christ. So anytime you study this book, it's not about being a moral person. It's more about encountering the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who speaks to us through this book. That's important. Let's look at the next question on, the, on our notes. So, so why we should believe it. If you're going to make up a religion and sell, sell it to the public, you would you have never come up with this one, okay? Would you? I don't think any of us would come up with this one. And, and that's why even more so I believe that this is truly God. Because he is beyond our comprehension, and in fact, I think there's a couple different uh, things that we learn, two things we, we learn from verse 17. It gives us two reasons we can believe in the Trinity, besides the ones that I pointed out. And you can do a lot of study, uh, a lot of studies on this, a lot more studies on this. And I'll give you a reference here in a minute of, of a guy that you can study from more. But uh, one is that, did you notice this, that some worshipped Jesus, and I think it's giving validity to his deity, 
But some doubted. Why would they say that? Because that's actually pretty counterproductive. Here Jesus resurrected from the grave. And it says, the apostle John documents, oh yeah, they worship, but some doubted. Why would he do that? Sounds counterproductive. Because it's true. These are eyewitness accounts. And, and because of the next point, number one, Jesus' greatness and deity overwhelmed them. So those that worshiped, they were overwhelmed. This is God in the flesh. They bowed down and worshiped him. And he, he proved that through his resurrection. That's the next point. His resurrection validated his deity. And, and what you need to understand is that Jews would have been the last ones to believe in the Trinity. Yet the Christian faith in the New Testament is made up of initially and predominantly of Jews. And so for these Jews to bow down and worship Jesus, that was, that's crazy. And yet it was his resurrection that validated his deity. And, uh, and so as, as we look at that, and, and, and you can see that throughout the scripture, this New Testament, when we read through the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, these were people that encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God, who died on the cross for our sins. He resurrected, and when they encountered him, their lives were never the same. They were no longer suited for a normal life because they had encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's just a little bit of evidence. Now, okay, that's enough of the technical side. Let's dive into this next part. So wake up. Punch the person next to you and say, okay, here we go. This is the next big important part. This is where it's stunningly beautiful. I believe that first part is certainly stunningly beautiful, but even more so the implications. What difference does it make? Number one, without the Trinity, you have no gospel. Without the Trinity, there is no salvation. Verse 19, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I gave you other references where it really talks about the working of God. So we are saved by the plan of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's a theologian, Dr. James White. You can write that down and Google search his name. He's got a lot of other resources and really understanding the Trinity. Really great stuff. But this is what he said. Remove the loving Father fount of salvation, the redeeming son, sacrifice for sins, and the indwelling spirit, comforter, and advocate, and you have nothing left but ritual and rule, another less than unique religious system. See, that's what, this is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Remember what I told you, I've told you this many times before, that you could put all of the major cults and religions of our world today in one category, and Christianity would be in a, in a category all by itself. So all the major cults and religions are really about a finite man trying to relate to an infinite God through a set of rules or regulations or trying to appease this God to where Christianity is, a fi- is an infinite God relating to a finite man through his son, Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. He restores us. He rescued us. God sent his son to this world to rescue us. You take Jesus out of the equation, it's another works righteousness kind of religious system. You take the Holy Spirit out of the equation, we're duped. I mean, there's no way that we can do any of this. We can't live out this supernatural life that he invites us to. And in fact, we are to have balance in our life. And what I've found growing up in the church is that certain church groups will emphasize certain aspects of certain one person of the triune Godhead. And there, have been, there are groups out there that will emphasize the Holy Spirit. And that's all they talk about is the Holy Spirit. And 
And I come from a group that typically did that, and some of what they, they did was really weird. They actually, if you emphasize the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of the Father and Son, you actually become too mystical. And then you begin to emphasize the gifts apart from the gift giver. And, and then I see people, they start seeking gifts, and, and they seek manifestations and weirdness, and it just becomes crazy, okay? Just be, be aware of that. You have to balance all three And so when you emphasize the Father apart from the Son, you can become pharisaical. Apart from the work of Jesus for us, it's not based on our work, it's based on what Jesus did for us. Oh my goodness, it's by God's grace. That's wonderful. When you emphasize Jesus as a role model without the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly the work of the Holy Spirit, boy, you're going to be in despair. You can't live up to the standard that he's established for you apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we pray, when we pray, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son because of what he's done through the Holy Spirit. So when, when I prayed this morning, and you don't always, you can pray to any one of the individual parts of the persons of the uh, triune God, but always keep in mind, it's the triune God that rescues us, that saves us. It's the plan of the Father, it's the sacrifice of the Son, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So when we commit our life to Jesus because of the work of, on the cross, we have access to the throne room of the Father, and then he empowers us with his presence, his Holy Spirit presence. So it's important to maintain that balance and understanding and in theology in the scripture to keep from going to these extremes. But here's the next point on your notes, and I think it's, it gets even more stunningly beautiful. Loving relationships are more important than great accomplishments. Loving relationships are more important. You're probably saying, well, where in the world did he get that one? Okay, I'm going to walk you through this, an understanding of that. Where did you get that from the Trinity? You'll notice that I always give you a number of cross-references that you can kind of work through. Cross-references, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, is it's just Bible. The best commentary for Bible, the Bible is Bible, okay? It's just, you, you look for other scriptures that help to support the scriptures that you're studying. And so let me give you some of those as it relates to this point that I'm making in relationship to the triune God. John 1.18, it describes the Son as, as living from all eternity in the bosom of the Father. Does that sound a little odd to you? What does that mean? Well, it's an ancient metaphor for love and intimacy. So from all eternity, the... the the Son and the Father have had this level of intimacy, closeness, and giving glory to one another. In John 16, 14, it says the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. In John 17, 4 through 5, it says the Son glorifies the Father and the Father the Son. And this has been going on for all eternity. It says in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. In other words, the essence of God, not that he gives love, but he is love. It's the very essence of his being. That's important to keep in mind because it doesn't say that he is power. It does say that he is holy. That would be another part of the essence of his being. Holy, we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks, that he's in categories beyond categories. When the Bible says he's holy, 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 that's what it's saying. It's like, oh my goodness, do you have any idea how he's so beyond our ability to fully understand and grasp. But when he says he's love, it's the essence of who he is. And it's what he's been experiencing from all eternity within the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Different views of God have different implications. For instance, if you're here, you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, then, then love, love would be nothing more than bio-brain chemistry. So you, you love someone, they dumped you, just chemistry, find someone to replace them. 
Sounds mean, doesn't it? But evolutionary process would basically say that. It's just chemistry. Just chemistry. So if you don't believe there's a God, then how do you explain the fact that we would have hearts of love? And we talked about that a few weeks ago. If you believe that God is unipersonal, that is that he's just one, not this triune God, then there was no love until God created beings because love is what one person has for another. So he really didn't have love until he created you because he's, so he desperately needs you so that he can give you love and you can give him love back. But that's not true because within the triune God, they've had this love relationship for all eternity. So the triune God, basically what it tells us is that there has been this mutually self-giving love for all eternity. And if this world was made by a triune God, then loving relationships is what life is all about. If it's a unipersonal God, then we would say, well, he's a God of power. He created all this. He's just primarily because he, he didn't, if he was a God of love, the essence of him was love. Well, that can't be true. He had no one to love. and You need someone to love. Keller has some, uh, Tim Keller has some really good stuff in a number of his books, but I, I, I grabbed this one. This is from his study. It's called The King's Cross. It's a study through the Gospel of Mark. And in the section where you have uh, Jesus being baptized, you have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and then you have the Father speaking from heaven. Listen to what he says in this. He says, the Father, the Son, the, and, and the Spirit are each centering on the others, adoring and serving them. So when it's talking about glorifying each other, that's what it's saying. It's, it's centering their lives on the others, adoring and serving them. And because the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another, God is infinitely, profoundly happy. All, there's a lot of dead theologians uh, out there that I, that I study from and read from, guys like uh, uh, St. Augustine, he goes back to 300 uh, AD. You've got uh, Jonathan Edwards, you've got C.S. Lewis, not as old as these other guys are. But what's interesting is that they would all say that because of within this triune God, there's this self-giving love from all eternity, is that God is the happiest being in the universe. That's important for us to understand. It helps to shape our theology. And so he goes on, he says, think about this. If you find somebody you adore, someone for whom you would do anything, and you discover that this person feels the same way about you, does that feel good? It's sublime. That's what God has been enjoying for all eternity. So it kind of gives you a little bit of an image of what marriage relationships and homes should be and churches should be about. It's this other-centeredness that should be going on within our lives. This, this putting not your needs ahead of others, but putting their needs ahead of yours. And that's what we see happening within the triune God. I mean, it's breathtaking. I mean, these are the deep things of God as we study Study this and look at this. That's what God has been enjoying for all eternity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are pouring love and joy and adoration into the other, each one serving the other. They are infinitely seeking one another's glory, and so God is infinitely happy. And if it's true that this world has been created by this triune God, then ultimate reality, and he describes it here, and and C.S. Lewis would describe it here, and Jonathan Edwards would describe it as a dance. There's this dance, this relational dance, to where we find ourselves orbiting around each other, as opposed to them orbiting around us, which would be classified as self-centeredness. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to read another quote in just a minute. You guys still with me? That's some heavy stuff. 
Bump the person next to you, wake them up real quick. There's a few out there that are sleeping. Okay. You're ba- okay, you're back awake. It's heavy stuff. I'm kind of nerdy, sorry. But this is good stuff because now we're going to walk into to how the, the implication. Here's the implication is that loving relationships are more important than great accomplishments. Now, let me know. Who's going to win that game today? First of all, let's just start with the, those of you that are uh, New England Patriot fans. Who's going to win the game today? Any New England fans? Okay, okay. That was kind of weak. But uh, how about New York Giants, Eli Manning? Okay, okay let's give the uh, New England uh, Patriots another shot at it. Uh, any New England fans out there? Okay, that's still kind of weak. Um, you can probably see where I'm leaning. How about New York Giants, Eli Manning? Okay, okay. Who doesn't really care? Right on. You guys are awesome. Because there's a, that's my point. That is my point. Here's my point. Let's just say I'm going to vote for Eli Manning. And I want them to repeat what they did a few years back, okay? Because uh, I don't like Tom Brady, okay? That's just all there is to it. I don't like the guy. Nothing personal, but uh, nothing personal. I just don't like the guy. And uh, so I'm voting for this other team. And it's kind of football is one of those things where you can just go on feelings and it doesn't really matter. And it's just, you know, so I'm being really feeling-oriented here. And I've really uh, digressed all the way from the Trinity to now I just don't like Tom Brady, that doesn't even fit, does it? You're probably trying to figure out, where does that fit? Okay. Uh, here's the deal. Let's just say that Eli Manning, he wins today, and then he wins a few more rings. And let's move ahead into the future that he's on his deathbed. And eventually he will die, and Tom Brady will die, and everybody will die. Everyone here will eventually die. Let's just say he's on his deathbed. Let's just say that he has that opportunity to be on a deathbed because sometimes we, we die because we crash in a plane or in a car and it's sudden, it's all of a sudden. But let's just say he's on his deathbed. He's got all of his family members and kids and maybe he's got grandkids at that time. Do you think that he's going to bring out all of his rings, his Super Bowl rings and go, check this out. Check this out. I, Grandpa here, dad here, Eli, dad is really a cool dude. Look at what I did. No, they're not going to do that. There's probably going to be dust on him. Maybe he, he wears one. Maybe he has one of us. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Why? Because I, and I, you hear me say this all the time. As a medic, as a paramedic with Phoenix Fire, as a pastor, I've been on the, the bedside, death bedside of people. Many people watched them unplugged, the life support, all of that. Watched the needle go straight. Nobody, nobody ever says, oh, I wish I had a bigger motorhome. I wish I would have made more money. I wish I would have worked more overtime. I wish I would have. No. It's always about faith, family, friends. Why is that? Because it's the essence of reality. We were created in the image of a triune God. That's what he's about. He's about loving relationships. Oh, by the way, there's nothing wrong with great accomplishments. In fact, many of these big corporations discovered in the last few decades is that if you have an environment within a corporation that's more like a loving family, you're going to actually accomplish more. And so, even, and, and so that is true in corporations. It's even true in, in families and in churches that when you have a context of loving relationships, 
that I'm more concerned about your needs and you're more concerned about my needs. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful environment. And the amazing stuff that can go on. There's great accomplishments. But the accomplishment is not the goal. It's the loving relationship. It's in that context. Then there's unbelievable creativity and accomplishment and all these great things that can happen. But we tend to lose focus. Okay, let's take Eli Manning now. He stepped from time into eternity, stands before God and gives an account. And he says, Jesus, look at what I got. That's foolishness. If he doesn't know Jesus, if he didn't do all he could and use that as a platform to exalt Christ and maybe to help his kids to get a, gl- a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of Christ, the Bible would call him, he would put him in the category of be- like the rich, rich fool, the guy that gathered all this stuff, he had all these accomplishments, and yet he was not rich towards God. And I don't know where he is in his faith, but I'm just saying that none of that stuff matters. It's so interesting how we put so much emphasis on stuff in this world, this, the accomplishments, and God's saying, no, no, no. It's my relationship with you and your relationship with others that matters most. Um, I know you parents, you really want your kids to succeed in, in academics and athletics. That's cool. But that isn't, doesn't even come close to you and your responsibility to give them a vision of the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what he did for them. Because see, if they have that, if they have that, then they can pursue the academics and the athletics in an appropriate fashion. Not to try to fill an emptiness inside of them because that emptiness is already filled through seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus. They'll have the fullness, and then they'll be able to use their athletics and their academics and all that. They'll excel. They won't be excelling out of pride or fear, but out of a fullness, a heart that is smitten with the beauty of Christ to bring glory to God, not glory to themselves. Major difference between the two. But we get so sucked into all of this, and so when we look at the Trinity, we're looking at loving relationships are more important than great accomplishments. And, I mean, you... you, you can see it, you see it, we, our, our society puts so much emphasis on that, we're going to make a big deal about the Super Bowl. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. I'm going to hang out with friends. The most important thing is that we're hanging out with friends. If Eli Manning and the New York Giants don't win, I'm going to be so ticked off, I'm not going to be able to sleep for weeks. I'm not, that's crazy. I'm going to forget about him. In fact, it doesn't really matter. What matters, I'm just hanging out with my family. And in fact, I'm going to use the Super Bowl as an opportunity to worship God through the Super Bowl. Man, what an amazing catch. God, I praise the God who created this guy that he was able to jump so high. Oh, my goodness. I mean, so you can worship football and you can worship God through football. You can worship food or you can worship God through food. We can do all those things. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can, we can do. And so we need to always keep that in mind. So loving relationships are more, are more important than great accomplishments. Um, there's a lot more I could say on that, but let's go on to the next one. Serving is more important than being served. Remember the, the discussion the disciples had? I mean, they're heading towards the end of the three years. Jesus is about ready to hang on the cross for them, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Ooh, these guys are jacked up, just like you and I. 
And uh, Jesus basically says, well, that's, that's not real greatness. You guys don't understand what greatness is. And he goes on and he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We live in a society today that says, be true to yourself. Look out for number one. You deserve it. You've earned it. Put your needs ahead of others' needs, basically, is what it's saying. My wife and I are teaching a marriage class right now. We're having a lot of fun. It's really good, and it's really helpful for us, and I hope that it's helpful for those that are attending. But uh, we talked a lot about this whole idea of self-centeredness this last uh, Friday. And, and self-centeredness is really interesting because it can be seen in two different ways. It can be seen in a superiority attitude or an inferiority attitude. Superiority attitude basically says, it comes in the form of boasting and it says, hey, I deserve admiration because of all that I've accomplished. Look at me. Look at all these rings that I've got on my hand. Pat me on the back. I want to feel better about myself because look at everybody oohs and ahs when I walk in the room. That would be superiority. And inferiority complex is just as, just as much self-absorption and self-centeredness. It comes in the form of self-pity and it says, hey, I deserve admiration because look how much I've suffered. Woe is me. So it kind of comes in these two forms. And this is what we found interesting as I was kind of walking through this, is that helping a a wounded person, by the way, woundedness, and we all get wounds in life, but woundedness tends to complicate that self-centeredness. And when we've been wounded in life, we tend to justify our self-centeredness because of our woundedness, because you would act like this too if you had gone through what I've gone through. I mean, that's kind of, so what we're doing is, yeah, I'm self-centered, but I was hurt. And so we tend to justify it We justify our self-centeredness because of our woundedness. But here's what I found interesting. Helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex, and this is very common in our society today. So helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck. If you go to most counselors, secular counselors today, that's what they would do. Oh, I feel so bad. I lost this. I did this. Uh, I'm, I'm a failure. No, you're not a failure. You're a great person. You can do it. <laughs> well, they're taking them from inferiority to superiority. They're still going to be preoccupied on self. And this is what I found, and this is what the Trinity is actually teaching us, is that servanthood is in the heart of God And in fact, the more self-centered you are, the less you are like God, the more you are like Satan, and the closer you get to hell. There's no greater glory or beauty than to give your glory or your beauty for someone else. And that's what Jesus did for you and I on the cross. He didn't empty himself of his deity, but of his glory for you and I. And in fact, let me read another quote real quick. Um, from the same book, and this is what he says about self-centeredness. And and by the way, this is what jacks up our lives more than anything, our relationships. It's really about self-centeredness. And it took me a long time to learn this as it related to my wife and my kids. But this is what he says. A self-centered life is a stationary life. So so an other-centered life orbits around the others. I'm here and I'm concerned about your needs, you're concerned about my needs, so he calls it kind of a dance. You see this happening within the the triune God. A self-centered life, a stationary life, it's a static, non-dynamic. A self-centered person wants to be the center around which everything else orbits. I might help people, I might have friends, I might fall in love as long as there's no compromise of my individual interest or whatever meets my needs. So you can actually meet other people's needs in an interest to actually have your needs met as opposed to you're actually doing those things not out of abundance but more out of emptiness 
to get your needs met. He says, I might even give to the poor as long as it makes me feel good about myself and doesn't hinder my lifestyle too much. Self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end, and that end, the non-negotiable, is whatever I want and whatever I like, my interest over theirs. I'll have fun with people, I'll talk with people, but in the end, everything orbits around me. So before we move on to the next point, nothing rids you of self-centeredness. Everybody look up here. Nothing rids you of self-centeredness like satisfaction in Christ. When you find your deepest satisfaction in him, when you can say the words that the psalmist is saying in 1611, you have showed me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Oh my goodness, I have never been more satisfied. Jesus, you would do that for me on the cross to bridge the gap that separated me for all eternity from the Father. I can't believe it. You love me that much. See, that's a, that's a heart that is smitten by the beauty of the cross and the triune God. Oh my goodness. It's just, I'm talking about it up here. I just get these chill bumps down my back. It's just like, woohoo! It's crazy what he did for us. You have any idea how much he loves you? The reality of that, if that would sink deep into your heart, you could face anything. But we make life about us. And we don't come to him to, to, to find our deepest joy in him. Nothing will rid us of self-centeredness than finding our deepest satisfaction in him, causing you to take your mind off of yourself and onto Christ and others. It is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Why would you need to think about yourself? You are satisfied in him. And so now you can begin to not only exalt him and live for him, but you begin to look out for the interest of others. What a wonderful family you would have if that happened. What a wonderful church this would be if we would really get on board and do that more so than what we've ever done before. Oh my goodness, that I'm concerned. What do you, how do you think my wife responds when she knows genuinely in my heart I'm looking after for her best interest? I am for her and not against her. Oh my goodness, it would open up her heart to me and want to, be, want to, want to meet my needs. See, that's the Trinity. That's what's going on. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Serving is more important than being served. Number four, God created us not to get joy from us, but to give joy to us. We're almost finished. And John 17 really talks about that. So if a triune God already had perfect joy in himself, why did he create us? Why did he create us? He created us not to get joy from us, but to give joy to us. So C.S. Lewis is right when he says, when God invites us to worship him, he is inviting us to enjoy him and to find our deepest joy in him. Once again, you hear me say it a lot. Look up here. Whoop. Listen, nothing. There's no football game. There's no big home. There's no great accomplishment out there that satisfies your soul like the creator can satisfy you. Knowing him, walking with him, experiencing him. 
That's why the psalmist over and over again, Psalm 63, 3, his love is better than life. What is he saying? Nothing in this life that can satisfy me like his love. Nothing. Nothing. How do I know if I'm going to him to find my deepest satisfaction in him? How do I know if I'm not doing that? Well, we studied this in this class on Friday night, and all you got to do is look at the opposite of the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, love, is, love does not envy, does not boast. So you look at the opposites of that. Do you find yourself impatient at times, unkind? Yeah, we all do that. Kind of irritated, mad, angry, whatever. So I often say inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression, anytime you're doing that, it's because you're trying to seek your own glory as opposed to the glory of God. You're not finding your deepest satisfaction in God. That's a signal. If you're finding your deepest satisfaction in him, I'm telling you, unbelievably, you will be perfect in contentment, perfect in courage. You'll know when to stand up and when you shouldn't stand up, when you should say something, when you shouldn't say something. You'll be perfect in compassion. You're not operating out of deficit. You're operating out of fullness in him. Next point. You can also look at the opposite of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Do you experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of your life? I don't. So I know at those given moments, if I'll take out time and say, hey, wait a, wait a minute, what's more important to me right now than God, then I could have an opportunity to repent and believe in him at those moments and allow God to get my heart re- realigned so that I can respond to those circumstances more appropriately. Here's the next point. This is where we bring it home. Number five, he, Jesus, was abandoned so that you never will be. He was abandoned so that you never will be. To understand this mutually self-giving love within the triune God for all eternity is to begin to understand the infinite cost of Christ's love for you on the cross. Now, from time to time, we get people that will come in here and they'll fill out the communication card and they'll say really mean things to me. And I don't blame you. You know, because sometimes I come off pretty harsh and pretty, pretty in your face and, and all that, and I understand. And sometimes people say, you're mean and you're, you're nasty and... You're a jerk and whatever. And I don't really know you. I look at your name and I don't know you. And so it doesn't have that much weight. doesn't carry that much glory. Okay, don't take it personal if you do that today. Um, especially after I just said that. But if you put your address on there, I'm going to come over to your house. And I won't do that. But, uh, but, but if you've been hanging out with us for a while and I've gotten to know you and you've gotten to know me, and you say, I hate you and I never want to be with you again or be around you again, that would hurt a little bit more, okay? Would you agree with that? Because we have a closer relationship. We've known each other for a time, okay? If my kids were to do that, one of my three kids were to say, I hate you and I don't ever want to be with you or around you again, that would really, really hurt more so than you. Nothing against you, but these are my kids, okay? And I'm closer to my kids. But I'll tell you this, that if my wife of 34 years said, I hate you, and I don't ever want to see you again. That would hurt like heck. That would be one of the worst hurts of all. I would look and go, oh my goodness, we've got a lot of time invested here. I love you, and what did I do, and let's work through this, and oh my goodness, that would be devastating. And our marriage is not perfect by far. We've had to work on it, and I'll tell you what, my heart would still be ripped out. But let me tell you this. That is nothing, that is nothing compared to what Jesus experienced for you 
on the cross. When for all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in this relationship. And the Father said, Son, I need you to go down and take care of their sin. And he came down to this earth and he bore our sin on the cross. And there was a moment in eternity when the Father turned his back upon the Son and the Son cried out, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think any of us can, can even come close to what our Savior went through for us on the cross. And he was abandoned so that you and I would never be abandoned. And even though we may feel abandoned, in reality, we never are. And we can always look to the cross to remind us of that. That even when I feel abandoned, he's told me he would never leave me or forsake me. And the cross guarantees that. Oh my goodness. Let's take that to heart this morning. What amazing, amazing love. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment, reflect on that, and then we're going to sing a song to kind of seal, seal it deeper into our hearts. God, thank you so much. For your amazing love. Thank you for this just this quick uh, glimpse into the triune God and the, the self-giving love that we see within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how God, if we're, we are really encountering you and knowing you, that will be more prevalent in our own lives. So God, may there be more, our lives be more about loving relationships and not so much about great accomplishments. May it be more about serving rather than being served. May we find our deepest satisfaction in you. That though we might celebrate later on today that who wins the Super Bowl, but God, we know that that's just a dim glimpse of the celebration and the joy that we have in knowing you and walking with you. God, thank you that through your son, Jesus, he was abandoned so that we never will be. We love you. It says, 1 John 4, his perfect love chases away all fears. What are you stressed out about? What are you anxious about? What are you irritated about? Do you have any idea how much he loves you? I pray that that love, the love of God, would seep deep into your heart. It would saturate your life. If you understood who it is that walks through your day with you, oh my goodness, you could face anything. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That no matter what you go through, you have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart and mind. You can face every circumstance, person, thing. It doesn't matter because you have him and he is more than enough. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.